This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The future of government support for renewable energy is very much in question right now. President Trump is bullish on fossil fuels, but has also said he loves solar. Both he and his nominee for energy secretary have been skeptical of climate change. The 1,700 or so Coloradans who work at the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden are watching closely. This is the lab's 40th year doing research and helping to commercialize emerging power sources. Martin Keller directs the lab, which is often called NREL. Martin, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I want to start with what the mood is at NREL right now. I would say it's an interesting mood because there's a lot of uncertainty. So when, when I talk to our folks who are at Enderil for a long time, they say, well, you know, we have this kind of transitions. We've seen, you know, uh, Reagan and Bush. And so they say it, it all will work out. But I think this time we don't know where we're all going. The new administration talks about all the above in energy. So I think there is room for renewables in there. But we just don't know exactly where it all goes. And this causes some uncertainties. All of the above is something of a buzzword that means traditional fossil fuels and uh, renewables. So you you hear some hope when when that term is used by the administration. Yeah. And when I look really at our energy uh, in, in the U.S., we are blessed that we can do all the above. You know, we have a lot of natural gas. We have oil. We have a lot of renewable resources on, on our country. So it, it would be a mistake, in my opinion, not to go to the all above. I want to talk about that uncertainty a bit more. So at his confirmation hearing, the energy secretary nominee, Rick Perry, seemed very positive about renewables. He talked about a fund established when he was governor of Texas that invested in solar technology. He said he supported government's role in research and development and in developing technology for commercial use, uh, both at the heart of what NREL does. On the other hand, the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank that's very influential with the Trump administration, has recommended doing away entirely with the federal office that oversees NREL and uh, perhaps spinning NREL itself out of government to be funded by private companies, universities, and nonprofits. Is it important that NREL be a government entity? Yes, I think so. If you would take the federal funds out of this, industry by definition is much more short term. I've done this 10 years in my life. I was in industry that you're driven by bringing products onto the market. And making profits And making money. Mm -hmm. And, And so you're not in this for long term scientific accomplishments. And I think we need to have both. We need to combine the the targeted applied research with the foundational research. And I think this requires federal funds to go into a laboratory. Can you give us an example of a product or a technology that is on the market today and grew from NREL? The biggest example there, of course, is first solar. They are manufacturing thin film solar panels, so they're employing thousands of people. All this technology was developed at Enrel. Thin and film, thin explain film. that. More and more what you're trying to do is on, on solar panels that you're going into thinner film panels. And also the goal is for solar that you have it everywhere. For example, for military people, you would have clothes which have solar panels embedded into our clothes. The idea that they're not batteries. just on roofs. Exactly. So they're like paper you can fold out. You have, and you've seen this when you go camping already, now more and more you're getting these little 
devices, these blankets, you can roll out to charge your batteries. So solar will go into a very new phase, in my opinion. So President Trump was elected in, in large part, I would say, on the hope of job creation. Yeah. If that's the argument, would you tell him, keep NREL because we're a job creator? I, do you have any evidence that, that you have created jobs with this technology transfer? When you look at the renewable and, and the latest job report coming out, it's very clear that, that we see a huge uptrend in jobs created out of clean or advanced energy technologies. On energy efficiency, there's about 2.2 million people working in energy efficiency. When you look at the renewable technology, uh, the, the job numbers, so let's say last year, they, we put a 25% increase. I think they added 73,000 jobs in, in solar. We added a lot of jobs in wind. So the increase in jobs is higher than in any other advanced energy technologies. So and, it and creates. You, you draw a direct line between that and NREL? So, you know, there is many researchers and companies working on on the case of renewables. But I would say a lot of the technology tracks down to very fundamental science. It started at Enrel. Look at Edwind. When we had variable wind machines, now this is what GE is using. Uh, we're still working with GE on some of the new modeling. On a global scale, renewables will happen. It, it Nobody will stop this anymore. Nobody will stop this anymore. But isn't that more of an argument for the private sector to take up the research. That is to say, if the private sector deems that that fundamental scientific research is important, they'll pay for it. Yes and no. They pay for the little incremental changes. And this is what I said. When you come in and you're working uh, with companies to improve the current product, this is where I can see, and we're seeing where companies come into Enrol and we're working very close with them to make their product a little bit better. But if you, for example, change the process, let's say in making your wind machines, this is, is not funded by industry. This is where federal funds, I think, are important. I always make this comparison. The national labs, the federal funds should fund research which is not done by industry. They will not take this risk to go down this research path. Is NREL able to hire right now? If you have a job opening, can you fill it? Uh, do you have the permission to do so? Can you add new jobs right now? We can add new jobs and we can fill the positions, yes. Okay, no changes there. No changes there. Thus far. What communication, if any, have you had with the administration? We had all the lab directors met on a, a meeting on a regular basis. We also met with the transition team. So they asked us about our opinion in certain areas, and we, we gave them information about the labs and the importance of the laboratories. We had good discussions with them. Of course, the transition team moved out. Now the so-called beachhead team is in. Beachhead is, is the So term that's for what this. they call the Beachhead okay. team. It's the team going, you know, and, and making the contact from the Department of Energy back to the White House. I see. What's the relationship with Senators Bennett and Gardner? Uh, because they may be key in this as well. So we have uh, a lot of discussion with uh, Senator Cory Gardner. You have seen this uh, also in the past that he's very passionate about NREL, and he also talks about wind. Uh, he is following us very closely, and, and I have to say he I like to discuss and talk to him because he is very passionate about, I would call, the, all the above. So, And, you know, this is reflecting Colorado. As you know, we're we having a lot of resources on gas and oil, but we also have a lot of resources in, in wind and solar. And, and Senator Bennett? Senator Bennett is always focusing uh, on 
education. So, but we also have a lot of contacts with him because he is also very passionate about what I'll call the front range and the, the whole science and education aspect of our resources here in Colorado. And uh, I have to say, in my opinion, we having world-renowned scientific facilities in our state. Do you feel like you're singing for your supper right now? No, I I would phrase it differently. I feel Enrel can do so much more. I think we need to show the country, and, and we have a lot of this evidence, that now the technology is mature enough that renewables will expand into different areas. And we just need to position Enrel differently. When we started, I always say this, there was a couple of the scientists on the foothills, and everybody thought, oh, they are crazy. What are they doing? This will have never relevance. Now see what happened. It completely changed the way we're talking about energy generation. So now the next thing is, how can you take all these different technologies and apply this across the U.S. for many different applications? Martin Keller, why don't you leave us with the research or development you're most excited about at NREL right now? Oh, there's a lot of things I'm very excited about. And one is... How can we change wind machines and make them even more cost competitive? So driving the cost down. So Are we they was, pretty expensive? So look, there, there is already in many areas, they are the cheapest way of creating electricity. And so there's studies out there by 2030, the cost will come down by another 30%. And this will be done through new advanced manufacturing methods. Look, this is one of these examples where federal research together with industry can make step functions. So what do you change in a windmill to make it cheaper? You will go higher up. Higher up. So as you know, there. when you look at the wind map in the U.S., there's certain areas, where, especially in the south, where it's a lot of wind, it's abundant, but it's high up. Huh. So you need to go above about 120 to 140 meter hub height, how it's called. So you're building very large machines. And by doing so, the question is, so why are we not doing this right now? And look, it's very simple because we don't know how to transport these blades. Mm. So the blades are getting too long. So you might some might have seen some of the blades running down our, our highways. They're huge. So now let's say you're adding another 30, 40 meters. They do not fit under any bridges, tunnels. So we need new processes to make them. And this this is really exciting. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Martin Keller is director of the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's a new world for doctors and hospitals in Colorado that see terminally ill patients. The state's new medically assisted death law is now in effect, and there are lots of questions about how to comply. So let's meet two end-of-life experts who help answer those questions. Jennifer Ballantyne chairs the Colorado Advanced Directions Directives Consortium, rather. Kim Mooney is a former board member of the International Association for Death Education and Counseling and consults on the issue. She lives in Boulder. I want to welcome you both to the program. Uh, Jennifer, you hold two day-long workshops with Kim for healthcare providers on this topic. What would you say is the biggest misconception about this new law among providers or what question do you most often get? Well, I think right now the questions are mainly um, very practical. They're about what exactly do we have to do? What does the law say we have to do? What do we not have to do? What is our liability if we do it? Um, And what does our organization do? Because this affects not only individual doctors and pharmacists, but also organizations, not only hospitals, hospices, 
long-term care facilities, assisted living, and so on. Well, the question of liability is fascinating. How do you answer those questions? Well, the law is very specific. I mean, anyone acting in good faith, quote-unquote, is not liable for civil or criminal prosecution under the law. Um, it does not provide a blank li- uh, immunity from liability. But if you act in good faith, you're not liable. But the law is very specific and it's very complicated and really following its procedures is the devil in the details. Yeah. And Kim, what would you answer in terms of the questions you most often get or maybe the misconceptions you hear? I think it goes back to very basic things like who actually can take advantage of this law. We have people who don't know that it's only terminally ill people, which is a very, very specific definition of terminal illness. We don't. We have people who don't understand things like that. You have to self-administer the drug, which is a problem for some of the population that would really like to take advantage of this drug. People with dementia, people with advanced ALS who cannot self-administer. And what exactly does that mean? So we still have a fair amount of the population who doesn't even understand who this law is for. Well, you've presented a conundrum there. So if someone wishes to take part in this, but isn't physically capable, how, how does that work? Because again, it's not the doctor administering this. What answer, mm-hmm. do you, what answer do you give professionals who ask that question? Well, unfortunately, they simply can't take advantage of it right now. Um, it's not a perfect law. It's, you know, in this country, we're very focused on self-administration. And in some of the countries in Europe, the physician helps, but it's a line that we've drawn here. We've drawn a, a couple of different lines here that are more um, easily or differently interpreted in other countries. So no, they're not really, it's not a law that that they can take advantage of right now at all. No. A reminder that no healthcare provider is obligated to take part in this. Two doctors have to agree that the patient has no more than six months to live. And as we've said, the patient must be able to administer the lethal medication him or herself. Uh, So that means that the folks you are talking to, Jennifer, are either, one, decided that they're going to participate, or maybe they're vacillating, waffling about whether they will participate. Exactly. And we've had an incredibly diverse audience. I I should mention that we've done now seven programs in five different locations across the state. We have three more this week, uh, and we've had probably more than 500 people attending. And they run the gamut from first responders, EMS, all the way to coroners. So everyone in that whole chain is feeling that we're affected and how do we deal with this? And feels they have a stake in this, even if they're not a physician. That's fascinating. Uh, You are an interesting pair to talk about implementation because, as I understand it, you took different positions on the ballot measure that led to this law, the Colorado Mm -hmm. End-of-Life Options Act. Jennifer, you opposed it, but are now involved in its implementation. Why? Well, I I opposed it. It is the law. And my biggest concern is that that people who are involved in it really do understand what exactly is entailed. And most importantly, that patient requests are responded to appropriately so that we're neither dismissing a request out of hand because of some fear or personal position that I don't want to participate in this, therefore don't even talk to me about it, or on the other hand, reaching for the prescription pad too quickly. I want to make sure that that the requests are explored and other interventions are offered. Fascinating. What I think I hear you saying, Jennifer, is that even if there are medical providers who don't want to directly participate, uh, they have an obligation at least to understand the law if a patient asks them about it. 
More than that, they have an obligation to understand what the patient is asking for. And oftentimes, if somebody says, Doc, I'm just so sick of being sick. I just want this to be over with. Can you help me? What they're really saying is, I'm in pain. My family is overburdened. We're running out of money. There's stuff going on that I feel out of control. I'm suffering. And so if we have a way to respond to that suffering, that's what they're looking for for relief from. Uh, Don't assume that they merely want to end their lives. Exactly. Ask about their pain management. Ask about social factors in their lives. Kim, what would you add? Well, I would agree completely. And that's one of the reasons that we can work together so well is we have the same ethical stance toward this. We have the same concern about both patients and medical personnel feeling comfortable understanding their own biases and knowing how to work with um, the needs of other people that may be very different than them. This was one of the most um, contested, hot measures that I've seen in a very long time. People were charged on both sides. People were not really willing to listen to each other. So coming from that place of, you know, enragement, a lot of people were really angry. I think it's really important that everyone can come into the middle and listen to the other, quote, side and begin to understand how we really do interpret requests. So, Jennifer, do the workshops you hold get tense? Not really. Huh. They've, been, they've been very, um, you know, it's a self-selected crowd. The people yeah. who are coming are open-minded. They want to learn more. Have so, an so inherent interest, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I guess that one of yeah. the questions is how do you reach audiences that aren't, you know? Well, there's, you know, we've done our best, you know, and I think over time, the patients will be the ones who will be bringing the concerns to the providers. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and you may know that in the past election, Coloradans voted to include the Colorado End-of-Life Options Act in the law. It's a medically-assisted death uh, provision. And we're speaking with two women who are helping health care providers of all sorts in implementation, that's Jennifer Ballantyne, president of the IRIS Project. It's an end-of-life consulting firm. She also chairs the Colorado Advanced Directives Consortium. Kim Mooney is founder of Practically Dying in Boulder, which helps with end-of-life planning. She's also a former board member of the International Association for Death Education and Counseling. I want to point out that even those who seek medication may not use it that having the medication in and of itself can be an empowering state. So it's not a kind of like a a black or white issue here, would you say? Jennifer, you're wrinkling your nose at me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're absolutely right. Um, Based on the statistics that we have from Oregon and Washington, about 30% of the people who receive a prescription do not ultimately die from it. Mm. Um, and, And certainly for some of them, it is psychological empowerment, you know, to know that today I choose to live because I have a choice. But for other people, they just wait too long. They lose capacity. Um, I was chatting with a a physician who helped a patient in California, and he said that one of his patients was all set to take the medication. And guess what? The Cubs got into the playoffs. So he decided (laughs) to wait and see how they would do. And so he waited to take the medication until after the series and then ultimately was unable to do so. Um, So, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that people might not take the medication. Kim, would you add anything there? Yeah, I think that uh, actually, in my opinion, I think that this whole movement is sort of in um, opposition to the default that we've had medically for the last 50 years, which is that we default to keeping people alive 
under all circumstances, CPR is not highly successful, but that is a legal obligation unless you actually stop it from happening by using advanced directives or CPR directives. So I think a lot of this started with the Hemlock Society, people holding on to a prescription because they felt like they were in control. But I think this whole movement is an attempt to take back some sense of control at the end of your life. How soon do you think we'll see the first case? I don't think we haven't seen that yet, have we, Jennifer? We have not seen anything announced publicly. Uh-huh. I don't have any reason to think that there are not have not already been some cases, but ha, but they've been privately kept. You know, they have not been announced. But but still tracked by someone, right, Kim? They're not they're not well tracked. Let me put it that way. One of the oppositions to this particular law is that there's very little record keeping. There's very little data that is being collected. So I would not be surprised if we've had a couple of situations that are that we're never going to know about. But particularly right now, when everybody's still gun shy. The um, data to track them, and Jennifer can speak mostly to this in terms of just, you know, down to the detail, but we haven't done a very good job of deciding how we're going to know if this is working and who it's working for and how we move forward with improving the law, because clearly this is the first generation of this law. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, in Oregon and Washington, we do have very helpful statistics about utilization and who's doing it, why, you know, how long they were in hospice, et cetera, et cetera. Colorado will not be collecting any of that data. The only data that we will have is the number of prescriptions dispensed, period. Do concerns um, among hospitals differ from those of, of individual physicians? You know, I should should just say here first that this almost never happens in a hospital. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the focus on hospitals is is a little odd. I mean, you know, hospitals are the big dog in the healthcare community, so they set a tone but this happens in hospice. It happens in long-term care. It happens at home. It doesn't really happen in the hospitals. But you're right. There is some tension between individual providers and the agencies and organizations they work for. Do you have any un- uh, concerns about unintended consequences with this law, Kim? Um you know, I think there's always one of the biggest, the, the language that could use is that this is going to be a slippery slope. I think every movement forward, every paradigm shift has felt like a slippery slope at the beginning. Unintended consequences, you know, there's some concern that people are going to be terminated because their family finds it inconvenient to care for them. I think that's one of the biggest concerns that we have. Um, I, you know what, I think it's a, a paradigm shift in the country that's going to, certainly there will be things that go wrong. There will be things that go wrong. But we have a chance to con- continually correct them and make this more useful to more people. So I'm not as worried about it as I think Jennifer is. Jennifer, I'll give you the last word, about 30 seconds. Yeah, so I think my biggest concern is that the focus on this particular option, which at the end of the day helps a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the people who are, are suffering through an end-of-life experience, the focus on it and the resources devoted to it will potentially undermine the will and the resources and the and the desire and the hard, heavy work to do better in hospice and palliative care and in other systems and approaches that really will have more better effect for thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Though I imagine there are some who would say that they're not mutually exclusive. They're exactly. not. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, we appreciate your perspectives. Jennifer Ballantyne, president mm-hmm. of the IRIS Project, an end-of-life consulting firm, and we heard from Kim Mooney, founder of Practically Dying in Boulder. We talked about how to implement Colorado's new aid in dying law. Ballantyne and Mooney have upcoming workshops planned on these questions in Greeley, Boulder, and Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
It's often hard for kids to understand death, especially when the person who's died is close to them. So Denver author Nancy Sharp has written a children's picture book to help young people make sense of their loss. This came out of her own struggle with the death of her husband when her kids were very young. Sharp speaks with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How old were your kids when your husband passed away? They were not even three years old. So I guess they were too young for you to try to explain it to them then. Yeah. I mean, death is an abstract enough concept for older children, let alone adults, to understand. But they really did not know where he was. I mean, for a good many months, they thought he was hiding. And actually, a good many years, they would ask me questions like, did we ever meet him? Which was really heartbreaking. And your book, Because the Sky is Grieving, it's a picture book. Because of, the Sky is Everywhere. Be, because the Sky is Everywhere, sorry. Okay. It's a picture book about a boy named Liam, and he looks everywhere for his dad who's died. Um, I'd love you to read a section for us. Um, maybe start at the beginning of the book and, and read a few pages. Sure. Okay. Liam sits at the round kitchen table to have breakfast. He eats cereal from his bowl. Everything feels the same. Except nothing is the same. Liam's father died. Liam, he must be hiding, Liam thinks. Liam searches behind the fat chair in the living room. He searches in Daddy's cedar closet, pushing aside the big jar of coins and shoes. Daddy is nowhere to be found. Maybe Daddy went for a walk. Maybe he's sitting on a bench watching the boats at the harbor. Maybe he drove a fancy sports car on the highway. Liam imagines a flock of noisy seagulls flying overhead. Higher and higher they go. The seagulls give him an idea. And as you see in the illustrations, um, Liam's imagining these places his dad might be. And we don't know in the book if any adult has talked to him specifically about what death means. But are you making the assumption that even if a child has had a conversation with an adult about loss, that it's still really, really tough for them to understand. Oh, certainly. And it's, I mean, healing mourning is such a layered process. So even if someone explains, I mean, we had a social worker uh, working with us and, you know, trying to illustrate in in simple ways and talk to, to my twins, Casey and Rebecca, that their dad had died. They don't get it. I mean, ultimately, they had to come to this feeling on their own and this this uh, awareness on their own that even though he's physically not with us anymore, his love is everywhere. Was there a moment that made you think, you know, I really, really should write a book about this uh, for kids? Yes. As a matter of fact, when this very conversation happened uh, between my children, which is really what inspired the book, I gripped the steering wheel of my minivan in Connecticut and thought, oh, my goodness, this is really a very powerful way to render what it means to to love even beyond the loss. So my kids were three years old when they were trying to figure out where their dad might be, and it led to a conversation that maybe he was in the sky, and the sky was, in fact, everywhere. Therefore, because the sky is everywhere. Right. Um, did you consult with any therapist to get a professional view of how to work with kids when they lose someone? I did. I did. Uh, obviously, we have 
a lot of lived experience uh, in my family because my twins were so very young when their dad died. But also when it uh, came to writing this book, I did share and consult with a variety of therapists and educators and professionals who work in this field. I wanted to get it right. And talk about the end of the book and, and Liam's sort of epiphany. You've alluded to that idea. Yeah. So really throughout the course of the book, Liam does what grieving children are taught to do, which is to imagine a special place or a protective being. And for Liam, that's the sky. So as he goes from the concrete world up into the sky and he he feels his dad's presence all around him and he sees images of his dad reflected in the stars, he gains this really powerful awareness that just as the sky is everywhere, so too is his father's love. And that really is the central takeaway of the book, that love is everywhere. And the book starts off mostly in black and white and ends in color. Um, I imagine this was intentional. What were you trying to show? Completely. You know, when someone has died, a parent, a grandparent, a sibling, a pet, the world lacks color. So only Liam is in color toward the beginning of the book. But again, as he gains that awareness that love is everywhere, his world feels brighter again. Your kids are teenagers now. Um, Did you find as they got older, they had new or different questions that they asked? Yes. Uh, And it's been different for both of them. They're twins, but I have to say they've processed this very differently. Um, It's challenging. You know, I mean, it's still right there at the surface in some ways, even though their dad died 13 years ago. Um, it's, It's just an ongoing discussion really that we have. And I think for my twins, one of the hardest things has been that they have no real memories of their dad beyond what I tell them, beyond the pictures they look at, beyond what their grandparents told them. Um, But someday they will read the letters that people wrote to them and they'll read my first book, Both Sides Now, which is really a lot of our family's story. Um, And We just really try to keep the conversations alive. And I think that's what I really wanted to achieve with Because the Sky is Everywhere is, you know, I wanted to create a resource for teachers to be able to use and for professionals and for clergy. You know, I I want for people to be able to have these conversations because they're not easy conversations to have, but it's so important. You just mentioned your book for adults about your own experience with loss. What motivated you to write that? Well, I wanted to make sense of my own experience. You know, I was widowed at 37. Or my twins, as I had just shared earlier, were not even three years old. And um, that's really what led me to Colorado. <clears throat> so I, I had had almost a decade of caregiving and mourning and When I turned 40, and there's nothing like those zero birthdays (laughs) to make you think long and hard about life, I realized that we needed something different. You know, I wanted to make a different life for myself and my kids. And so writing Both Sides Now, which is inspired by the beautiful Joni Mitchell song, um, really uh, was my way of integrating my experiences and being able to frame it in a way that... um, made allows readers to reflect on their own experiences of of loss which is so incredibly universal and by making that change you were able to find a really new and strong life here well i was and people love this story so you know we came a decade ago 
And um, about the first year after I, I got here, I um, was on my own still. My twins were five, and I didn't know a lot of people. <clears throat> and I happened to be reading about um, a widowed TV news anchor named Steve Saunders. And I read in 5280 Magazine that he was being touted as one of Denver's most eligible singles. And of course, that he had been widowed with two kids. And I thought maybe, maybe we could be friends. So I reached out to him. Uh, via email, never really expecting anything would happen. But amidst all crazy odds, it did happen. And we've blended our families and have been married 10 years. And, you know, there's loss on both sides, but the love is greater than the loss. And that's really, I think, the most powerful takeaway for both books is that we have to find ways no matter what the losses are for all of us, we have to find ways to integrate those losses and to build it into the fabric of our lives today, but not let it reduce us or define us. And we still have to find ways to move forward in our lives in bold ways. Nancy, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Nancy Sharp has written the new children's book, Because the Sky is Everywhere. She's also author of Both Sides Now, a true story of love, loss, and bold living about her own experience with loss. She spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters. On the first day of the state legislature, Democratic House Speaker Chrysanta Duran laid out a big priority. Let's reach bipartisan consensus on a statewide transportation plan, a plan that overhauls our fast-decaying infrastructure and meets the needs of our rapidly growing state. Well, with the session more than a third over, CPR's Vic Vela joined my colleague Joanne Allen from the Capitol for an update on transportation negotiations. Vic, let's first catch listeners up on the underlying issue. Why are lawmakers looking for more money for roads? Well, basically because the Colorado Department of Transportation says right now it only has enough money to maintain roads in their current condition, and it needs $9 billion more for improvements over the next decade. And the state's population is still growing rapidly, so there's going to be a lot more folks driving on the roads pretty soon. Currently, the state relies on the gas tax for road funding. That tax hasn't been raised since when? Since Roseanne and Cheers were the most popular sitcoms on television, 1991, Joanne. Uh, So lawmakers on both sides of the aisle agree they have a problem. Well, what is their solution? Well, the consensus seems to be to ask voters to increase the sales tax. And for those listening who are new to Colorado, first of all, welcome. It's important to know that state law requires any tax hike get voter approval. So raising the sales tax, can you get a little more specific? Well, Joanne, I asked Democratic House Majority Leader Casey Becker about that. There's a lot of detail that has to be worked out, really um, what it's going to look like. What is the funding source? What are the trade-offs? What is it going to fund? How is it going to work? So really, nothing is figured out. What are the sticking points? Well, it's really tricky because a bill has to be bipartisan. I mean, after all, it's a split legislature. Now, House Democrats are fine with a straight tax increase, but Republican Senate Majority Leader Chris Holbert says there's got to be a trade-off. Can we give the voters, the the residents, the taxpayers in Colorado relief in one place if we're going to raise taxes in another? Vic, where are Republicans looking for that relief? 
maybe getting rid of the gas tax or giving business owners a break on taxes they pay for equipment and computers and things like that. Or it could even mean cutting other areas of the state budget. Their big goal is to make any new tax revenue neutral, at least for the first year. I don't get it. Why raise taxes if the state doesn't end up with any more money? Well, even Senator Holbert agrees that sounds a little strange. You're right, and critics are right. If we were just trading $1 for $1, what good does that do? What Holbert means is that it's not going to be dollar for dollar long term. If you replace the gas tax with a higher sales tax, that starts bringing in more money pretty quickly. And if Republican lawmakers are going to be okay with raising taxes, which is a huge deal for them to accept, it's important to be able to say to their constituents, yes, we are asking you to dig into your pocketbooks, but we've also asked the state to do the same thing. So I guess now the big question is how willing are Democrats to make these trade-offs Republicans are asking for? Well, House Majority Leader Casey Becker says her caucus is keeping an open mind. She says she's willing to look at existing money in the budget uh, so long as it doesn't take away from education. She's also willing to look at a scenario where revenue is neutral in the first year, perhaps through tax offsets or tax simplification. Vic, that is the debate among lawmakers. What kind of pressure are they getting from groups outside the Capitol? Oh, gosh, tons. Uh, business groups are really putting the pressure on lawmakers. They're worried companies could start leaving the state if you can't get around on the roads anymore. Uh, Sandra Hagen-Solon is a spokesperson with the nonpartisan group Fix Colorado Roads. Uh, she hasn't given up hope for a deal yet. My fear is that ultimately that some external force weighs in and says, we can never support that. And they, they themselves draw a line and it all falls apart. What does she mean by external forces? Any number of groups that have sway at the Capitol. Uh, for example, the Colorado Municipal League is concerned an increase in the state sales tax could make voters less willing to raise local taxes. Then there's the influential conservative group Americans for Prosperity. Uh, they say they'll fight any sales tax hike. Well, this all sounds like there are a lot of obstacles. Yeah, that's for sure. But 2017 could be the best year to put this on the ballot because 2018 will be a more charged political climate uh, with a governor's race and midterm elections going on. That is CPR's Vic Vela speaking with Joanne Allen from the state capitol. They talked about ongoing efforts to raise transportation funding in Colorado. Well, the Tiny Desk Contest from NVR Music is back for its third year. A panel of judges is watching thousands of videos from independent musicians all over the country, many in Colorado, like the other black. She found her path of golden NPR will announce the winner soon, and the winning act will get to perform its own Tiny Desk Concert at NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C. Past videos have featured big-name artists including Adele, John Legend, Yo-Yo Ma, playing at a desk in NPR's offices. Nearly 200 of this year's videos come from Colorado. 
Our colleagues at CPR's Open Air watched these entries and picked their favorites. And host Jesse Witten joins me. Hi, Jesse. Hey, Ryan. You you watched like 200 videos? I put my time in, yeah. You did. Okay. <laughs> well, winning this Tiny Desk Contest was a big break for the two previous winners. Uh, tell us how it's helped the careers of Fantastic Negrito and Galen Lee, uh, neither of whom are Coloradans. Also. No, we're still looking for our first Colorado win here. But these previous two winners were both coming from relative obscurity. They had their music careers. But then winning these contests, that puts them in the NPR fold. And it really is, it's a family. It puts you to another level. For example, Fantastic Negrito just got a Grammy for Best Contemporary Blues Album on his newest record. He played Jimmy Kimmel live this year. He came in for a CPR performance studio session just last year, and that's as big as you can get, really. Ah, and mind. it's meant quite a bit for Galen Lee, too. <laughs> it has. They're really in the fold, and as Galen's career progresses, she's being invited to panels, and NPR keeps people uh, abreast of what these artists are up to. Okay, let's talk about some of this year's entries from Colorado into the Tiny Desk Contest. We just heard the music of The Other Black, a Denver band that blends soul, funk, and hip-hop. What's their story? Well, they do incorporate all these things so flawlessly, effortlessly. As you can hear in that, it feels like so casual. There's these callbacks. They seem like they're just having fun. And honestly, looking through these hundreds of videos, Mm -hmm. a lot of them were Americana. A lot of them were singer-songwriter. And this video stood out so strongly because they're all just such incredible musicians. And together, they make this very playful vibe that really takes over the room. And I'd love to see them in front of a tiny desk. Here's more of Rover. This is the entry from The Other Black. I'm selection, you're reflected. This deflection needs reflectors from this overpriced collector. Still in splendor, serendipitous. Mosquitoes, Leviticus. Remote, malicious, demoted lips. It's such a devoted lifestyle. Long miles, longer blade run. On the other side, I could be home watching shamed eyes. My, 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 who's gone and caught my eye? Just an innocent wallflower. Ignorant and power, coward, delicately outward. Louder than the club rats that are screaming in my ear. They keep inching closer up the neck. So that strong voice you just heard, that's uh, Wes Watkins. He was a member of Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats, uh, Air Dubai. He plays around town in lots of different groups, and he's beloved because he's just capable of taking on so many different styles. So I think the other black was on your radar screen. Did you discover in watching these Tiny Desk videos from Colorado. Any new artists to you? Yeah, we happily, we saw some great names that we have uh, loved over the years Mm -hmm. at Open Air, but a lot of new names. And interestingly enough, my favorite video came from a brand new name, someone I'd never heard of before. Well, brand new to you. New to me, yes. Holden (laughs) Boyles. Holden Boyles, okay. What's what's, uh, what's catching, catching about? Yeah. Well, he's really interesting. This was just such a very bare bones song. It's just him and a guitar and a camera slowly zooming in on him. He's a musician based out of Denver. And to be able to create that kind of stillness and focus with a very graceful performance, that really stopped me in my tracks. Okay. Holden Boyles and uh, the tune that he submitted is And Hollow Was the Soul. just uh, makes me want to take a nice big breath appreciate 
a solo acoustic performance there, for sure. Yeah, you can just really lean into this one. And and digging in deeper, he's a really interesting artist. He actually is a game developer. Okay. And he's made the soundtrack to his very own video game, which sounds nothing like this. It's a very spacey electronic sound. But this is that perfect kind of lean into it acoustic song. Oh, the dude's got range, is oh, yeah, what you're saying. Okay, hold in boils. Up next, we've got Rossonian. This is a band out of Denver that has entered the Tiny Desk contest before. They didn't win, but they did get some recognition last year. Yeah, they got a pretty significant shout out. Uh, NPR actually listed them as one of 10 runners up last year. So honorable mention for sure. Uh, NPR called them Cosmic R&B. And what's interesting is this year it is completely different. The sound is not similar whatsoever. Not Cosmic R&B. Okay, well, this is Rossonian playing Joker Smile Young Again. videos remind me that it's easy to sound good with a lot of orchestration and a lot of editing. It's not so easy to sound good when it's just you and a guitar. And so you really stand out if you've got good vocals. Exactly. You're standing on your own two feet. And that's the point of these performances at Tiny Desk uh, for the Tiny Desk Contest. It's you in a very humble space among bookshelves standing there with all you have, which is your talent. And in this particular case, usually it's a four-piece band, so there's a lot of adornment, typically, with this for, band. For Rossonian. Rossonian, yeah. In this case, it's just singer Seth Evans on his own, and it's a great presentation of his vocal play, just raw, naked. And I love this video also because it's got this great Colorado background. Ah. Well, a lot of these videos are solo performances, but uh, I understand one of them sounded a lot different. Tell us about Tyler Van Kirk Orchestra. Well, oddly enough, uh, orchestra, total misnomer. It is actually still just one guy. But if you're not watching the video, it sounds like a full band. He, He layers, he loops, and he makes it a very full sound. Okay, well, here's Standing by Tyler Van Kirk Orchestra. Up next, another band that might be familiar to open-air listeners, a Denver rock band, The Outfit. This is a major open-air favorite. There's a little bit of a warning here. The song is a little over-modulated. The band themselves have noted that. So this isn't traditionally what they sound like, but it's a great representation of what great performers and songwriters they really are. This is Sex City. That's a nice full sound from The Outfit, another of the bands that's vying for a tiny desk win. Finally, a brass group out of Boulder called Gora Gora Orchestra. 
This is a band you might not typically hear on CPR's open air. Less than a minute. Tell us about them. I really couldn't help myself with this band. Again, it was basically thinking about the contest, the fact that you are in an office in front of a tiny desk. I couldn't help but wonder how fun it would be to see a marching band behind that desk. Gora Gora Orchestra. This is Killer Robots. I was speaking with Jesse Witten from Open Air, and thanks for being here. Thanks, Ryan. You can view videos from Colorado artists who entered this year's Tiny Desk Contest at CPR, uh, pardon me, openaircpr.org. Again, openaircpr.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.